Perfect. So welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning. As Kelly mentioned, my name is Kyle Fisher. I'm with Pennsylvania Health Law Project, and I'm joined by Callie Perrone and Marissa Lawal. Uh, this morning, we have three main topics to cover in the health-related COVID updates section. We're going to talk first about coverage protections on the eligibility side for our clients with Medicaid. And we'll also talk about some changes to the eligibility processes uh, for applicants trying to gain Medicaid coverage. Uh, the second part of today's training is going to cover Medicaid services, uh, temporary changes related to uh, new coverage, and then also some protections in place for kids with medical complexities and also older adults, adults with disabilities who are getting long-term care services. Uh, the last third, the final third of the session is going to be led by Marissa and Callie, and they're going to discuss uh, COVID testing, uh, some barriers for our clients with Medicaid and our clients who are uninsured, also some resources and some lessons learned from outreach that we've been doing with those populations. So that's the plan for the next hour. We have a fair amount to cover, but we do hope to take questions during the session. So if you have questions, don't feel the need to wait to the end. Please share those in the chat box uh, as soon as you have it. We'll plan to pause after each of these sections to take some questions, time permitting, since we only have about an hour. Uh, okay, without further ado, let's jump into it. So this may be familiar to some of you. This is the DOH data dashboard. I want to put in context some of what we're discussing here. Uh, unless you've been living under a rock the last six months, you've probably seen some of these numbers. Uh, COVID virus, the coronavirus is throughout our state. It's clearly in even the most rural areas. We have dozens of cases in counties like Forest and Elk. Uh, overall, over 140,000 confirmed cases just in Pennsylvania, nearly 8,000 deaths just in Pennsylvania. Uh, case numbers, I think as most of you know, spiked back in April. They've been coming down, but there's been a more recent spike such that we're getting now uh, close to a, upwards of 1,000 cases a day uh, now that we're in September. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to let you know this data is shared by the Department of Health. I mean, it's clearly the case that the virus is still a risk. The risk of transmission of this virus is still present in Pennsylvania. We're far from being through the woods. A little more context here, and this is important because a lot of the protections and the flexibilities that we're going to talk about in this session, uh, they hinge on the federal public health emergency being in effect. So you can see here that the Secretary of Health and Human Services at the federal level first declared or enacted the national public health emergency at the end of January. Uh, Secretary Azar then renewed it towards the end of April and again towards the end of July. If we can pause for a second on that July renewal, <laughs> note that it was far from a given, right? So this was not at all inevitable. Uh, as I think most of you probably know, uh, it's a highly politicized issue. Uh, so getting through the, the end of the summer, there were a lot of state policymakers who did not expect that the federal government was going to renew that PHE, the federal public health emergency. And as we'll talk more about in a couple of slides from now, uh, many of these protections that are in place uh, depend on that. So it was renewed for another 90 days which puts us through to October 23rd, which is the date to watch, and we'll come back to that as well. Uh, Governor Wolf, also in a very highly politicized environment, has also twice renewed the state disaster declaration. 
uh, also key to a lot of the flexibility is in place. Uh, many of you may have seen, I believe it was yesterday or Monday, not only is this a highly politicized environment, but it's also uh, an issue that's been legally contested. So there was a federal court decision out of Pittsburgh, I believe on Monday, that, that uh, spoke to the, the governor's uh, authority to enact the disaster declaration and do some of the business shutdowns that he has. So today's session is not going to cover shutdowns at all. We're only talking about Medicaid protections and then some of the virus testing resources and barriers uh, for folks with Medicaid and also the uninsured. So let's start on the eligibility front. And I suspect those of you on the call who do public benefits work, if you're doing Medicaid work, more likely than not, you're focused on helping your clients obtain coverage. Um, on the Medicaid eligibility side, one unambiguous uh, piece of good news that came somewhat early on is this no closures rule, also called the continuous coverage protection. And under this, any, any of our clients, any individual who have medical assistance open on or after March 18th cannot have that coverage closed absent a few narrow exceptions. So this is a little different than the maintenance of eligibility rule that we saw during the last recession. MOE goes to states having to maintain their eligibility levels and processes. Uh, this continuous coverage protection goes beyond that and says anyone who actually had coverage open as of this date and time back in mid-March cannot have it stopped. So even if they age out of the category they were in or even if their income spikes where they otherwise would no longer qualify under this rule, which stems from the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, uh, under this rule, states can't close that coverage. And it's a <clears throat> the legal underpinnings here uh, is a state option insofar as under the Families First Act, states have the option of whether they wanted to choose the enhanced federal funding. Uh, but given the amount of funding at stake, it's more like a mandate. So Pennsylvania was not at all, I think, interested in turning down that 6.2% federal match bump during the public health emergency. And any state that uh, enacts, chooses to accept that enhanced federal funding has to abide by this no closures rule. So we talked about uh, our clients cannot have their coverage closed during the exception. They also can't have their benefit package reduced. And that's important, especially for clients like those are our clients who are hitting age 65, who are becoming Medicare eligible. Um, so they might lose, otherwise have lose, lost their, uh, their full Medicaid benefit package and perhaps based on their income or their resources, they might only qualify for the Medicare buy-in for the state to pay their Medicare premiums. Uh, so under this rule, the state still has to enroll them into the buy-in program if they qualify for it, but it has to keep on the full underlying Medicaid to be secondary to their Medicare as well. So it's really a one-way ratchet. They can have their benefits increased, but not uh, decreased. On the exception side to this no closures rule, some of them are fairly minor, clients who move out of the state, clients who withdraw, actively ask that their coverage be stopped, clients who pass away. I think the one piece where we might encounter clients who have their coverage stopped um, in a way that's permissible under this rule 
is for certain immigrants. So lawfully present children and pregnant women who qualify under the CHIPRA option, uh, if those lawfully present children age out, so I believe it's age 21, if once pregnant women get through the postpartum period, this rule does not apply to them, at least according to a fairly clear guidance out of the federal government, FAQs. Uh, one other population I wanted to highlight with respect to this no closures rule is clients of ours who are receiving MAUD, medical assistance for workers with disabilities. So if our MAUD clients are unable or stop paying their MAUD premiums, they cannot have their coverage closed. If they lose their jobs and they're no longer working, they cannot have their coverage closed. So I think as a practical point messaging, if our clients are not paying their premiums because they can't afford to, because they've lost income, they should report that to the CAO. So even if they don't report anything, they just stop paying their premiums, they're not gonna have their coverage closed because the state can't under this rule, um, but they should still report it and it could be moved to a category most likely that doesn't have a premium, so it's not an issue down the line. Uh, Uh, another eligibility-related protection in place right now is the state, <clears throat> through the Office of Income Maintenance, moved fairly early on to broaden its self-attestation rules. Uh, so those of you who do public benefits work probably uh, are quite familiar with clients getting notices that says, we've denied your application or we're stopping your coverage because we asked for verifications X, Y, Z, and you failed to provide those. Uh, under this framework, the CAO and the caseworkers are going to accept what the clients tell them, self-attestation, uh, far more broadly than they usually would. Uh, so this applies to income, resources, disability status. Uh, it does not apply to citizenship and immigration status or the five-year look back on the resource side for long-term care, MA. And I think this Temporary guidance really reflected a couple of things. One was that the CAOs themselves had a reduced workforce. So when, when they initially shut down, you know, they had a workforce, caseworkers working from home if they were working at all, a number of caseworkers who also presumably got sick. Uh, and it also reflected the fact that a lot of our clients were unable to get the verifications that the CAO routinely requested. So if you think back to March and April, when the restaurant industry, among others, shut down virtually overnight. Uh, a client who lost their job at a restaurant may not have been able to get a letter saying, my workplace no longer exists, or it's shut down indefinitely. So good news here as well. I will say on the no closures side, the slide we had a minute ago at the Health Law Project, we had a fair number of clients who did have their benefits stopped early on in March. So there was some catch up the CAOs had to do and some clarification from their policy staff and sort of uh, helping the CAO caseworker staff understand exactly how this works. I, I don't think we have seen many cases related to self-attestation. This has not been one that's come up a lot, at least to my knowledge. Uh, with respect to the, the exceptions to this normal self-attestation rule, for citizenship and immigration status, the, the existing rule around verifications exists. So they, if you're working with an immigrant who's applying for coverage, they should have the coverage authorized while they're given this quote unquote reasonable opportunity period to verify the status they've reported. 
um, and I think that can be extended. So that's it's in the existing handbook. That's not a change from the normal processes. I think there was certainly some advocacy on the second major exception here, the five-year look-back period. And there was some advocacy trying to get state policymakers to apply self-attestation to this five-year look-back as well. And this is where a client who's seeking nursing home MA or a waiver service uh, has to not only show their resources over the last five years, they have to also um, verify that there were no transfers for less than fair market value or for less than fair consideration. That's where the state's looking to ensure no one transferred assets in order to become eligible for Medicaid. Uh, that's a, it's a very onerous process. It's burdensome for our clients in the best of times. I don't think it's gotten any easier during the pandemic, but unfortunately, to my knowledge, at least the state has not changed its policies. It's still not applying this broad and self-attestation to these long-term care MA applications. All right, we're moving somewhat quickly here. If you have questions about anything we've covered so far, so far, please do use the chat box and we are going to pause for questions momentarily. Kyle, there is one question in the chat box. Um, do you expect to see overpayments due to continuous coverage? Uh, it's a good question and the answer is fairly clearly no, we do not. So under the Families First Act, uh, the federal legislation which the state has agreed to basically abide by given the enhanced match, uh, clients are to be treated as eligible during the public health emergency. Uh, so even if by virtue of income or age or any other criteria, the, the client doesn't qualify under the normal rules, that federal legislation in effect overrides that and says to the state, treat them as though they are eligible. So we should not see any overpayments. I, I should note actually, since I think I neglected to mention that the no closures rule is in effect until the end of the calendar months in which the federal public health emergency ends. Uh, so, as we noted on an earlier slide, the federal PHE, the public health emergency, is in effect right now until the 23rd of October. So, the earliest we could see closures here would be November 1st, um, and we'll come back to that in just one second. So, as we were discussing, we have a, a one-way ratchet in effect. So, Medicaid eligibility and enrollment, or the enrollment numbers, have only been climbing and we're now just over 3 million Medicaid recipients statewide. Uh, I think unquestionably this is good news. 3 million mark is not one Pennsylvania has passed before in its history with the Medicaid program. It represents a little over 6% of an increase over the last six months, and it now comprises not quite one in four Pennsylvanians. So 3 million is about 23% of Pennsylvania's population. Uh, Notable in part because we have seen an overall drop in applications for public benefits. I think advocates and state policymakers have noted that and I think have been somewhat concerned that despite the sort of cratering economy, despite the fact that we've seen unemployment rolls skyrocketing, overall applications for public benefits are down sharply from where they were in late March and early April. Uh, despite that, as you can see from these numbers here, we've had steady growth in the Medicaid program. 
So I think that's good news. I mean, Medicaid is functioning in our state the way it's supposed to as a counter-cyclical program. You know, we have uh, huge jumps on unemployment. We have hundreds of thousands of folks losing their employer-sponsored insurance, and they're able to gain Medicaid. That's the backstop. It's a safety net program that should be available, um, and, and it looks like it has been. So good news there. Uh, I think it's also somewhat of an indictment over the normal churn that we see in the Medicaid program, where clients who aren't substantively ineligible nonetheless lose their coverage on a month-by-month -month basis because of the various procedural hurdles that exist with renewals, with verifications. Uh, so that's something that's not happening uh, during this pandemic because of the, the no closures rule that's in effect. And we can see, again, here as well, steady growth. The, the last bullet here is something I want to highlight because I think this is really a, it's really an important unknown at this point. So an outstanding question is what happens at the end of the public health emergency? So come November 1st, assuming that the federal public health emergency is not again extended, and I don't, I don't know whether it's likely to be or not, but if it's not or when eventually the public health emergency ends, what next? So is the, is the state going to do tens or potentially hundreds of thousands of terminations immediately? Or will it be able to more gradually close those budgets that it thinks no longer qualify for Medicaid? We don't know the answer to that. We also don't know for those budgets where the state believes the individual is over income based on information it has from March or April or May. We don't know whether caseworker is going to reach out and give those individuals an opportunity to show that their income has changed since then. So the longer the public health emergency goes on, more likely than not, the more stale the information is going to be that the state would be acting on. Uh, so this is a huge unknown. We certainly hope that the state is going to be very gradual in closing down budgets where clients no longer qualify for Medicaid. But at this point, we haven't seen any guidance. And I think it's Still an open question as to what the federal government's going to allow. Um, it's very much the case that state policymakers are extremely wary of quote unquote disallowances, any anything that would jeopardize federal match. And it's unclear whether the feds are going to allow states to gradually sort of close down those budgets that no longer qualify for Medicaid once the PHE ends. I want to pause there for just one second. Any Questions on anything else that we've covered so far? Um, there's one question about unpaid mod premiums and if they will be collected later. So according to an FAQ that CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services put out, any unpaid premiums um, should not be collected after the end of the PHE. So this goes back to, I think, messaging for our clients, even though under the federal guidance, they can't have their, their coverage closed for not paying premiums. Under that same federal guidance, the state should not be able to collect those premiums later on after the emergency ends. I think certainly the safer policy would be to advise those clients, if you can't afford to pay your premiums, report the reason why to the CAO so you can be moved to a category that doesn't have premiums. Hi, all. this is Kelly. I think this is a good spot, so I don't have to interrupt more. Um, for the attorneys on the webinar today, I've launched the first of the two question boxes for CLE credit. I'm sorry, let me relaunch that. For some reason, it is turning off on me. Okay. 
<clears throat> sorry about that. So please um, respond to the CLE poll. Uh, it'll be up for two minutes. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it'll be up for two minutes. And please feel free to continue. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Um, okay, so let's shift from the eligibility side to Medicaid coverages and temporary changes in place during the pandemic for our clients who already have this coverage. Uh, the first relates to coverage of testing and treatment for COVID. So very early on, the state announced that it was going to authorize new uh, billing codes for testing of COVID. Uh, and it's covering this without any need for prior authorization, without any copays, and that that coverage uh, requirement was another feature of the Families First Act. It was more or less a mandate on states for a condition of receiving the enhanced federal match. So that was early on. Um, and Marissa and Callie are going to discuss some of the testing challenges later on in this session. Uh, a second piece that came much more slowly was the state agreeing to waive copays for a number of different types of medication. Uh, so this does not require that the client have a diagnosis of COVID, um, and it treats a wide range of uh, symptoms or medications that treat symptoms that could be attributed to uh, the COVID virus. So it includes pain relief, anti-nausea, antihistamines, a number of different types of medication. And I think that was a reflection of a couple of things. One was that we know there were capacity challenges, that not everyone who wanted to be tested for COVID was able to get those tests. And it also reflected some of the shifting medical guidance and the best practices where lots of individuals who were had symptoms that could possibly be related to the virus were told to stay home unless they were severe, unless they needed to go into the hospital. They were told to not bother getting a test, stay home, treat the symptoms, and assume that you were positive for COVID. Uh, so given that, uh, the waiver of co-payments here, uh, I think good news, that didn't come out until the end of May. You can see it was issued at the end of May. It was retroactive to the beginning of March. Uh, clients who paid copays out of pocket for any of these medications could um, should have received on the fee-for-service side at least a letter discussing this. They could take that to their pharmacist and ask to be refunded for those copays. Uh, on the managed care side, most of the managed care plans have already waived copays for meds, so this is a little less significant. I think for clients in managed care or fee-for-service, important to note uh, that. The state has also temporarily extended coverage of over-the-counter cough and cold meds. Uh, so this was not something that's normally covered for adults. It is covered for children on the, under the child benefit package. Uh, but when we're talking about coverage for meds like DayQuil or NyQuil, uh, 10 12 $15 is a significant expense for a lot of our clients. That's something their Medicaid can cover right now during the public health emergency. Uh, as is the case for Medicaid coverage of any over-the-counter med, the, even though it's an over-the-counter med, the client will still need to get a doctor's script for it. So it's not prescription, but they need the doctor's script in order for Medicaid to cover it. Uh, I think that's all I want to say on that. All right, that piece actually is, yeah. Let's see if I can advance the slide. There we go. Okay. Um, Another temporary change that's in place right now relates to shift nursing and protections in place for kids who are receiving in-home shift nursing. 
And this was one of a number of services covered under the umbrella of a suspension of shift nursing, excuse me, suspension, suspension of prior authorization, which was an authority and a flexibility the state pursued under an 1115 waiver. So this was a waiver to um, the normal state plan, a waiver of the normal Medicaid uh, requirements and restrictions that's permitted only during national public health emergencies. So I want to focus on the shift nursing freeze because this is the one that I think of the different uh, services affected by the prior auth suspension, this is the one that's far most common for our clients. It's the one we've heard about the most. So families that had shift nursing in place in the beginning of April cannot have those services stopped until further notice from the state. So that's regardless of the normal authorization period ending, that's regardless of parents being newly available, perhaps because they're working from home or their jobs have ended. It's also regardless of the end of what was the school year or the beginning of the school year we're in now. That coverage can't be reduced. And that's a huge protection for our clients. Uh, I will note it does not apply to individuals who are new to Medicaid or new requests for shift nursing, it also doesn't require, apply to any requests for increased hours. Uh, the state's OMAP, Office of Medical Assistance Programs, enacted this first in April. Um, it revised the guidance, and you can see here in the quick tips listed lower on, revised it some in May. Uh, and I think it was a reflection that a lot of Medicaid recipients were not able to get prior authorizations. They weren't able to get into their doctor's offices when those offices closed down, when lots of medical providers begin working remotely. And so it more or less froze those services in place as a protection. Uh, a second protection in place right now, and this came out much more recently, it was actually the end of July, is the extension of the child benefit package for youth aging out of the EPSD benefit. So uh, for those youth turning age 21 who are getting, for instance, shift nursing or home health services or intensive behavioral health services, uh, they're able to continue getting those services even past the 21st birthday, even though normally our adult benefit package doesn't cover them. I think this is a significant change, especially for those clients who would be applying for waiver coverage at age 21 because they need continued in-home shift care, for instance. Uh, they should be able to continue getting the same shift care they were getting before the age of 21, uh, even after that, uh, under this temporary uh, protection, which is going to be in place to the end of the public health emergency. So I think we have some outstanding questions about how this interacts with their waiver coverage for those clients who are able to transition into say, the CHC waiver, uh, whether the service plans and the waiver benefits that are authorized under that service plan uh, are necessarily secondary to what's, I guess, an extension of the state plan benefit. But I think those questions aside, this is unquestionably good news, a good change. All right, uh, let's segue away to the long-term care end of the spectrum. So moving from kids with special needs, medical complexities, to older adults, and adults with disabilities who need services in their homes to avoid uh, institutionalization. So very early on, the Office of Long-Term Living enacted a moratorium on waiver service reductions. Um, so I think it was, Late March, OLTL submitted 
uh, it's Appendix K to the federal government, so flexibilities to the CHC waiver that allowed it to prohibit any waiver reductions, uh, and that was in place. That protection was in place from March until the end of July. So OLTL acted early on, but unfortunately, they also acted somewhat early in ending that protection that was in place. So on June 25th, they issued guidance to the MCOs, allowing them to resume waiver reductions for participants in counties that had reached reopening phase green. So this was tied to the governor's reopening phases. By the time that guidance was issued at on the 25th of June, I'm fairly certain that every county in the state had reached the green the reopening phase at that point. And I think as those of you on the call likely know, pretty much all counties are still in the green reopening phase despite the, the spike in confirmations we've seen recently. Uh, this moratorium on waiver service reductions was one of many flexibilities requested under the revised Appendix K. So there were also some flexibilities that allowed spouses and POAs, for example, to be paid caregivers during the pandemic. There were also some flexibilities regarding settings in which waiver recipients could receive services. But this is the one that I think most commonly affected our clients. So the CHC managed care plans are now allowed to reduce services. And they definitely are, in fact, doing that. But they can do it only after having done a comprehensive needs assessment. So this is not a new rule. This is, predates the pandemic. This is the way CHC works. These managed care plans have to do uh, a full assessment of the participant before they issue any reduction in services. Um, initially, OLTL required those assessments to be done face-to-face. -face. Uh, it fairly quickly backtracked, unfortunately, to allow telephonic assessments for clients. I think recognizing that the service coordinators for the managed care plans were loath to go out in person, and a number of participants didn't want anyone um, coming into their homes unless absolutely necessary. Uh, the downside to these assessments being done telephonically, though, is that they may not be capturing the true needs of the participants. Uh, so I think it is worth noting that even though the vast majority of these assessments are currently being done by telephone, and the data the states released show that oh, it's over 85%, that's the, the lowest number, and that would mean 15% you know, of those assessments in go with health and wellness uh, were being done in person. Uh, even though the vast majority are being done by telephone, uh, our clients have the right to an in-person assessment. And if certainly if you're working with clients whose managed care plan has contacted them, it's really important to let them know the stakes here, to let them know that this is not uh, a casual call from their service coordinator checking in on them, that these assessments are being done with the purpose of evaluating whether the services they're receiving now are appropriate, necessary to meet their medical needs, and that the NCOs are certainly likely to reduce services if they think uh, the client no longer has needs that justify them or, or that the client's needs can be met by family members or other uh, resources. Uh, we have heard from some clients that the assessments being done by telephone may last only five or 10 minutes and that that's, should not be the case either. So these should be thorough assessments of the client's needs and also their goals and their preferences, you know, the supports they need to remain in their home and not be institutionalized, not need to go into a nursing home. A 
All right. Uh, one more slide for me, and then we can pause for some more questions and segue into the, the last third of the training here. Uh, universal testing and long-term care facilities. So I think, unfortunately, long-term care facilities have been sort of epicenters of uh, COVID transmission and certainly mortality in Pennsylvania. So over two-thirds of mortalities associated with COVID and PA have occurred in these long-term care facilities. I think one continuing response, and it was a somewhat late response by the state, was establishing these regional response health collaboratives. And so these are call centers and rapid response teams affiliated with regional, typically uh, health systems and university health systems. Uh, so where they provide technical assistance, infection control assistance, and then also on-site uh, assistance through the rapid response teams to facilities, uh, not just nursing facilities, but also personal care and assisted living facilities that need help. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, that's all I want to say about that. Uh, the state also somewhat recently required universal testing in facilities, not just of residents who were showing symptoms that were potentially virus related, but also of asymptomatic residents and also staff, since we know that it's not just the residents in these facilities that are getting sick, uh, that are potentially transmitting the virus, but it's also the typically low wage workers that are in the facilities doing the work. Uh, so the Department of Health required that universal baseline testing of all the nursing homes in the state that was to have been completed by the end of July. Uh, the Department of Human Service licenses the PCHs and the assisted living facilities. That was to have been done by the end of August. Uh, DHS announced that uh, all of the facilities that it licenses, and it's over 1,000, 1,300, uh, had completed the, that testing. So the universal testing had been done. Uh, DOH is now posting the results of that those surveys of that testing on its website. So there's a spreadsheet list by county and by facility uh, testing results for both residents and staff. So I think this is certainly a step in the right direction in terms of transparency. It helps families that might need to place a loved one. It also helps the residents themselves know where there have been uh, sort of the locus, where there have been hotspots of virus transmission. Uh, that said, I think and this has been reported in the Inquirer and elsewhere, there are some gaping holes in the data the state's been presenting. I think it's also the case that the state has been somewhat slow in publishing this data. Uh, so take it, unfortunately, with a grain of salt in some respect. Uh, so again, a good, good news that the, this data is out there. Uh, I will also say on this note for any of you with friends or family or clients that are hoping to avoid a placement in a nursing home facility, uh, that we do have a, a session coming up on nursing home diversion and nursing home uh, transition. So for those of you trying to get a friend, a client, a loved one out of a facility, uh, how to transition them out to the community with supports. We have a session coming up on those topics in early October that's being, I think, jointly presented by Health Law Project and CLS, Community Legal Services. All right, I feel like I've been talking for a while. I am going to stop and take questions and then we will move on. Hi, Kyle. There's just one question. Um, how active are the reductions in waiver services? Uh, that's a good question. I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, unfortunately. I think it, it, 
assessments have numbered into the thousands for all three plans. Uh, so there's three CHC plans. Uh, PA Health and Wellness was the first to resume assessments and reductions. Uh, UPMC and AmeriHealth and Keystone CHC began doing assessments and sending out reductions in the middle of uh, August. Uh, at the Health Law Project, we've been seeing these client cases from all three plans. The state OLTL recently released data on uh, reductions, I think, through the end of August, but I don't have that at the top of my head. I think if you take a look at the MLTSS uh, notes that I believe are publicly posted at this point, it, it would touch on this. Thank you, Marissa. Any other questions? Nope, none right now. So I will start sharing our screen for the second part of the presentation. share your screen button, Marissa? Um, yeah, but then it wouldn't show my full presentation. So now I think I fixed it. If you go under slideshow in the top menu and then from current slide or whichever slide you need, that should work. Okay, there we go. Um, it was showing a different page. So back in July, PHLP hired, um, we were able to use CARES Act funding to hire three navigators to really focus on low income and marginalized communities that were hit hardest by COVID and the testing, you know, still remains low for those areas. So we really wanted to focus on people of color, Medicaid recipients, and <clears throat> the uninsured with the goal to ensure that these communities had access to COVID testing and treatment um, just by increasing the availability of information. So we wanted to create resources, work with the community organizations they were already partnering with and identify any problems that they were having related to diagnostic testing and not antibody testing. So our three navigators have been working in different areas of the state, including um, the Harrisburg, York area, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley to specifically target these populations and begin creating resources to assist them. So um, what we've been looking at specifically is the who, you know, what, where, when, and why of testing. So where to get tested in these locations. So this is, you know, your health center, your urgent care, your pharmacies, um, how to find it. So we have here the HEMA website, um, although there are some, you know, issues with that, it'll tell you where to get tested, but not give you a lot of information about what you need. So we wanted to fill in the gaps of where to find testing and what you need to be tested. So. 
Um, you can contact your primary care provider. You can look at state and municipal websites. You could call the PA Department of Health and they'll tell you where the testing sites are, but they don't give you much more information. So, you know, what type of test are they providing? Is it a nasal swab? Is it a cheek swab? You know, are you doing it yourself or is a provider um, doing the testing for you? Um, are you eligible to even get tested? It's sort of a mixed bag, but some, you know, some pharmacies or urgent cares require that you be symptomatic or that you have an exposure and underlying condition. They're not allowing everyone to get tested. And also there's barriers to being tested that Callie will go through with more information. Um, but some places you need an appointment or you need an online assessment. Um, a provider referral or they're only allowing you to go, you know, if you have a drive-through testing site, you must have a car to go through or have documentation. So our work is to fill the gap so that way you don't show up at a testing site and are actually unable to be tested. You can find all the information right in one place and then find the most appropriate testing so you're not exposing yourself and others if you are positive and really being um, a resource for the individuals who are already doing this work and the organizations working in those marginalized communities. So, as I said, um, we're really looking at the Medicaid populations. So, all Pennsylvanians enrolled in Medicaid, um, individuals who may need emergency Medicaid due to uh, COVID, and then CHIP, um, they will cover COVID-19 testing without, you know, a co-payment. And there's no, there shouldn't be any prior authorization from their MCO or fee-for-service to require testing. And then looking at the uninsured population and making sure that they are, um, you know, able to get tested and know where to get testing. Um, and that healthcare providers can submit claims uh, for COVID testing um, through the, you know, human rights or, through HRSA. Um, and that's really, you know, our goal of working, you know, what our navigators are doing day in and day out to um, ensure these populations are getting testing and know where to go for resources. So I'll turn it over to Callie, who's going to go over the barriers of um, COVID-19 testing and the lessons we've learned so far. All right, hi, um, everyone can hear me okay, I hope. Um, I'm Callie Perron, I'm one of the community navigators. So uh, going on to barriers, in our research, we've identified common barriers to getting tested. Uh, and these barriers are especially prevalent in our target uh, populations. So for one, needing access to a car, many sites are drive-through only, especially when you get out of major cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And uh, when a car becomes a requirement of getting tested, that disproportionately limits access for lower income folks. Uh, a number of sites require a uh, referral from a primary care provider in order to get tested. This becomes a barrier for people who don't have insurance and for people who do have insurance, it just makes the process, uh, you know, longer, more arduous. Limited testing, by this I mean both too few testing sites and too few tests, especially outside of the biggest cities. There are a few testing sites and even, even less low barrier sites. Um, when there's high demand and limited tests, it can take a while to get an appointment and to be seen. Uh, and this also ties to the issue of delayed results during periods of high volume. Uh, it can sometimes take upwards of a week to get results back. And testing isn't really serving its purpose when it takes that long to get results. 
um, internet access and digital literacy, it's often a prerequisite for getting tested. Uh, it's often needed to locate testing sites in your area to learn about their cost, eligibility, hours, etc. A vast majority of uh, sites require scheduling an appointment online. Few sites accept appointments over the phone or walk-ins. Uh, and many require taking an online assessment to determine eligibility, for example, you know, if you're symptomatic or not, uh, if they require that. Uh, and even send results via email or web portal. Uh, additionally, information changes frequently, uh, and internet access is often necessary to have that up-to-date information. Um, and lastly, lack of information. Uh, there's, there's a lot of misinformation or incomplete information out there. Uh, for example, I spoke with a testing site that was promoted online as a free option for the uninsured, uh, but when I called and spoke to somebody, I learned that the test is free, but they charge $180 for the visit. That's not free testing. Um, we've also found places that are listed online as testing sites, but when you call, you find out they're not actually doing testing, just misinformation. Um, and even the testing site information that is accurate and available online, it's not always easy to find, user-friendly, or comprehensive. Uh, just for example, uh, you might find a map that tells you where the sites are in your community, but it doesn't tell you if testing is free uh, or it doesn't tell you that you need a car to drive up. So like Marissa mentioned, part of our goal is to gather that information on low barrier testing sites and disseminate it in a way that's accessible and comprehensive for our uh, target population. Okay, next slide. All right, so um, I'll briefly take you through some of the geographic specific information from the areas that we've been focusing on. Uh, we started our work in these areas, but we do plan on expanding to some other areas in Pennsylvania. So uh, in Philadelphia, there are a variety of sites throughout the city. Uh, many sites do have requirements that make them inaccessible to low income and undocumented individuals, but uh, there are plenty of low barrier options as well. We found that community health clinics are often the most accessible and most trusted options as they already work with low income and immigrant populations. Uh, the Black Doctors COVID Consortium is also an awesome resource. Uh, it's a low barrier mobile unit that brings free testing to primarily African-American neighborhoods hit hard by the pandemic. And um, they've said that many patients that have tested through their consortium had previously been denied elsewhere due to the barriers that we've mentioned. Uh, we also found that some sites are very underutilized while others are at max capacity, which speaks to the need for more uh, awareness of testing sites. Um, and you can see the numbers for Philadelphia's COVID hotline and their link to their interactive testing map uh, website. Uh, the map is one of the most user-friendly online resources that I've uh, seen for locating testing sites since you can filter it based on your own needs. Like you can, if you can see, you can click drive through or walk up if you don't have a car uh, and it's in multiple languages. Uh, however, we have found that the hotline is functionally not very accessible for uh, non-English speakers. So be aware of that. Um, next slide. All right, so um, there are over 50 testing sites in Allegheny County. Again, we found that while many sites have requirements that make them inaccessible or less accessible uh, to low-income and undocumented folks, there are also a handful of low-barrier options. Uh, Allegheny County particularly has a lot of options for free testing due to a partnership between their health department, health centers, and curative labs. Um, and you can see the COVID hotline number and their online testing site locator. Uh, unlike Philadelphia, it does not have a filter system, so it doesn't clearly state which sites provide free testing, which require appointments or referrals. Uh, it's just not as user-friendly for our uh, target population. Um, next, please. 
All right, and then uh, testing in the capital area, it's notably different from testing in the bigger cities of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. There are significantly fewer sites. Uh, there are only six in Dauphin County, and the vast majority of sites are high barrier, and it's much harder to find comprehensive information online about testing. Um, let alone not online. Um, Hamilton Healthcare, though, and FQHC in Harrisburg uh, just launched a free testing mobile, a free mobile testing unit uh, that travels to different high need communities in the capital area. Uh, it's the most low barrier option that we've been able to identify in the area, but currently uh, it is operating at pretty limited capacity uh, while it ramps up, currently just uh, operating once a week with a 50 person limit. And uh, to find testing in this area, you can use the Pima map that uh, Marissa mentioned, or you can call the PA Department of Health, uh, their customer service line to help locate testing sites if you don't have internet access, but they can only tell you uh, what's on the Pima site, um, which really only lists site location hours and the website. So it's not very helpful for our target population. And uh, from what we've seen so far, this lack of options and lack of information is pretty uh, common once you get out of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Next, please. Um, so we wanted to take an extra moment to highlight challenges commonly faced by undocumented Pennsylvanians seeking COVID testing, uh, which we've heard from connecting with community members, community advocates. Um, so if, you know, if we want to increase uh, access to testing for, her, for folks who are low income, marginalized, or uninsured, we do need to pay particular attention uh, to undocumented uh, Pennsylvanians. So in addition to the testing barriers that uh, we discussed above, undocumented individuals face unique barriers, including fear of testing positive and losing income due to having to quarantine. There are limited opportunities for paid leave for undocumented workers in industries like uh, the restaurant industry, for example, and uh, many workers can't afford to lose income, miss work and lose income. Um, fear of being fired for testing positive. This is illegal, but it does happen, especially for undocumented workers with limited means of recourse. Um, testing sites, they often require some proof of identity in order to be tested, especially if you're uninsured and don't have, you know, your insurance card. Um, there's a lot of fear in sharing personal identifying information, fear of divulging undocumented status, uh, fear of that information getting to ICE. The testing sites that we've spoken to, they've said that they only need uh, proof of identity. Uh, identity for their own internal purposes, that that information, it's strictly confidential. It won't be shared with immigration officials or other agencies. They'll never inquire about citizens, uh, citizenship status, but that information isn't widely publicized, nor may it be enough to ease these fears. And then uh, language barriers, limited information and resources available in one's language in order to know where to go get testing, especially for free testing, and lack of services provided in one's language at the testing site. Um, and again, many of these households are juggling multiple priorities and multiple challenges uh, and just don't have the capacity to prioritize navigating COVID testing, which is you know, a challenge in itself. All right, next slide, please. Okay, so uh, what have we been doing and what will we be doing to ensure that low-income marginalized Pennsylvanians have increased access to and information about COVID testing? Uh, we've been gathering a lot of the information that you just saw above uh, through research, outreach to testing sites, to community groups. Um, we've been signal boosting the low barrier options that are out there in a more streamlined and streamlined and more targeted way. Uh, and we've been compiling this information into resources geared specifically to be informative and accessible uh, to people who are on Medicaid uninsured. Um, we've been working on flyers, fact sheets, resource guides, and you can see here uh, some examples of some of the flyers that we're creating. Um, so what's next? We're just beginning to um, 
to disseminate our resources to community partners as we continue to build up our resources. Um, the testing site, uh, there's going to be a testing section on PHLP's website, which hopefully will be launching later this week, um, with testing site information relevant to our target populations and our own interactive maps. So please uh, check that out. We can let you know when it's up. Uh, we'll be leaning uh, more into opportunities to educate the public about our findings, about what resources are out there, and to advocate for increased uh, access to testing uh, going forward. And we also hope to shift gears a bit to focus on COVID treatment as well for our target population. So how can you support this work? Um, please share our testing related resources with your clients on your website, social media, help us to signal boost this information and get it to those who might need it and benefit from it. And uh, of course you can refer clients to PHLP as needed. Uh, for example, if uh, you have a client who's wrongfully received a bill for what should have been a free COVID test, we should be able to help with that. Next. And uh, lastly, based on our findings so far, here's what we recommend in order to increase access to COVID testing for low-income and marginalized Pennsylvanians. Uh, for one, increase the amount of testing sites, uh, especially in smaller cities. There are too few sites and even fewer low-barrier sites. Um, reduce barriers across testing sites. We need more low barrier sites throughout the state, uh, which means, you know, more free or sliding scale testing sites, more options for walk up and walk in testing, meaning no appointment required or no car required. Um, accepting alternative forms of identification, as well as clearly explaining why identification is needed uh, and who that, who that information will be shared with, which is important to increasing testing. Um, and easing fears for undocumented individuals and immigrant communities. Um, we need more user-friendly, comprehensive, up-to-date information on testing locations, uh, eligibility, accessibility, that kind of information that's relevant to our target populations who are being hit hardest by COVID. And like I said, that's one of the gaps that our work is hoping is uh, trying to help fill. Um, we need increased language accessibility, both in terms of the resources that are out there to help people find sites and uh, language accessibility at the sites themselves. And finally, uh, we need to call for the continuation and expansion of access to free testing for the uninsured and Medicaid recipients, especially if and when the declared uh, state of emergency ends. Thank you. I'm gonna take this moment quick to um, interrupt. This is Kelly and I will be launching the second of the two CLE credit polls. Please respond um, and submit your answer. This will be up for two minutes. Thanks guys, you can keep going. Marissa, I believe you're on mute. So we have some references for you, and I believe they were provided in the chat box, a copy of this PowerPoint presentation. Um, so that way you have it. And as Callie said, we're updating our website and we'll hopefully have the testing sites open with an interactive map by the end of the week. Um, And then at this point, we'll take any final questions. As always, you can call our helpline that's open Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 8 to 8. Email um, our staff email or join the PHLP newsletter. Thank you. If anyone has any questions, please um, type them in the chat box now. We'll give it about 30 seconds. And if we don't have any questions pop up, oh, Marissa, do you want to take that? Question? Yeah. Um, with COVID displacing so many PA folks to other states for work or shelter, 
What is the guidance about how to keep their Medicaid? Should they be applying in new states even if they don't know how long they intend to remain or as practical matters have a foot in both states? Uh, I can try to respond to that one. Uh, it's a good question. I think unless, uh, unless the client is really intending to stay indefinitely outside of the state, um, I would I would say they remain a resident of Pennsylvania and they should keep their Medicaid uh, in Pennsylvania. I think that's going to get more difficult if they're, uh, if the absence is prolonged and if they're in a place where they're unable to use their Pennsylvania Medicaid coverage, uh, then they might want to uh, think about changing the residency and applying for Medicaid there. So Pennsylvania has a compact with a number of states where if they see that you're active in another state, you wouldn't be able to keep your Medicaid coverage in PA uh, because you're not technically supposed to be a resident of more than one state at a time. Um, so it sounds like it's likely a case-by-case -case evaluation of really what's the best course for them. But if they're only temporarily outside of PA, I would think they shouldn't take any steps to end their Pennsylvania uh, Medicaid. Um, they would, I would leave it intact. Any other final questions before we close? I think we are coming up on the hour. I'm not seeing any other questions. So uh, Kyle, Marissa, and Callie, I would like to thank you for being here with us today and sharing this important information that people need to have. Um, we appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who's joined us. And everyone have a good day. Thank you, Kelly. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you. Take care, everyone.